What if you could talk to aliens? What would you say? How would you say it? Those were the questions John Lomberg found himself trying to answer in 1977. Describe the world. Describe the world in a hundred pictures and an hour of sound to extraterrestrials that you know nothing about. I mean, the whole premise was, was, was challenging. John is an artist and a lover of outer space. So back in the 70s, when he heard that Carl Sagan was crafting messages about humanity for extraterrestrials, he wrote him a fan letter. Sending him some of the art that I was doing at the time that was inspired by some of his ideas. And from that initial fan letter grew a lasting friendship that spanned over 25 years and many projects. A few years into this friendship, Carl invited John to contribute to a project unlike anything he had ever done before, creating a greatest hits record for aliens, a golden record. This record was commissioned by NASA and would explain life on Earth to any intelligent extraterrestrial who ever found it. Sagan's team had one task, capture all the diversity of life on Earth, humanity, the birds, trees, culture, love, the ocean, and so on, in a single record, not even a double album. And then NASA would shoot it into space. No biggie, right? You can't even begin to undertake something like this without making some assumptions about your alien audience. First off, the team assumed that the aliens would have eyes and ears to be able to see and hear the messages. They also reasoned that these aliens would understand the basic concepts of physics, gravity, and things of that nature, or else they probably wouldn't have gotten to space in the first place. And they figured any extraterrestrials intelligent enough to find the record would eventually be able to figure out how to play the record. With these important parameters set, the team turned their focus to the actual content that would go on the record. We decided we wanted to have a sequence of greetings, not because we thought extraterrestrials would be able to translate them, but just because giving a greeting on something like this is a very human thing to do. Shalom. Konnichiwa. O genki desu ka? Milí přátelé, přejeme vám vše nejlepší. Hello from the children of planet Earth. John and the team use sounds to create an image of life on Earth. Maybe it's a long shot, but they hope the aliens might recognize some of these sounds from their own planet. Thunderstorms, animals, the din of a large city. Of course, there was no reason to expect that aliens would immediately know what this thing was when they found it. So John also designed a diagram for the surface of the record. It explained how to take some of its audio waveforms and decode that data to render a total of 116 photographs. Everything from a nursing mother to a congested highway to diagrams of evolution and DNA structures. Unfortunately, since this was back in the 1970s, the record had to go into space without some of humanity's most iconic images. You know, like the cover of Nevermind or the AI image of the Pope in a giant coat. And of course, they also added the sound and image of a rocket. As if to say, this is how we made it here. How we arrived at this moment. John and the rest of the Golden Record team watched the launch. We were there and we all went to the bleachers where you sat, you know, to see the launch vehicle. And when... 
the rocket started rising on its pillar of flame, I had the sensation that my my personality and my consciousness was kind of twinned, and half of me was in that spacecraft, riding it as it rose and disappeared into the sky. And it was as pure and wonderful a moment as I've ever had. As far as we know, John and his team's creation, this piece of themselves, is still floating out there somewhere in the universe. Right now, it should be somewhere in the Pavo constellation, more than 20 billion kilometers from Earth and counting. Imagine the record in the stillness of space. Maybe the occasional dim light of a nearby star glints off its surface, but otherwise just quiet and emptiness as it ventures ever further from Earth. The instructions etched on it, waiting patiently to be deciphered. The design will uh, last for as long as it takes the occasional whisper of interstellar dust to erode it very slightly. Space is very empty and there's hardly any dust, but there is an occasional dust grain that will hit the surface and make a tiny, tiny little crater. So if you try to estimate how long will it take for that dust to wear down through the engraved playing instructions, that lifetime is considered to be something like a thousand million years. So that drawing will last a thousand million years protecting the surface of the record. It makes sense that NASA had to turn to an outsider, an artist, to figure out what to say to aliens a billion years from now. It requires some really out-of-the-box thinking to even begin to contemplate such a question. The kind of thinking that governments certainly are not equipped for. It's not surprising then that John became a sort of go-to, out-of-the-box thinker for the U.S. government. Fast forward a decade or so, John was asked to be part of another project. Instead of an alien audience, though, this time his audience was humans, 10,000 years from now. The WIP project was a dire warning to our descendants, maybe even more urgent and more important than doing the Golden Record because the lives of our descendants were potentially at risk. The Golden Record was a radically optimistic endeavor. Who even thinks we're going to be here in a billion years? But it is important to think about the impact of our actions on future generations. This episode, we follow John and a few other future-oriented thinkers who participated in one of the government's weirdest studies, how to explain the hazards of nuclear waste to human beings 10,000 years in the future. If you're trying to contact the alien, include me. Did you hear anything from them so far? No. What's all this? I put the American flag just to be patriotic. Now we need to really mean something. A universal message, not only to Earthlings. We already thought of everything we could think of. A cross, a star, a four-leaf clover, letters, numbers, hieroglyphics. What's the point of projecting a star onto the moon? Exactly. I ask that sincerely. But equals MT squared. I still think it's too easy. This is our chance to be actually worthwhile in our lifetimes. I see what you mean. Dan Riker was an environmental lawyer. When Dan sued the Environmental Protection Agency in 1987, he had no clue he was now on course to work, along with John, on the most far-out project of his life. When you 
you asked me to do this interview. I said, I got to find my file. But I said, I think I have a good chance of finding it because it is marked Dan's favorite report. (laughs) Dan was a young attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, working under someone you might remember from this podcast. My boss was the eminent physicist, Tom Cochran. Did he ever take you skinny dipping? No, he never took me skinny dipping. NRDC is an advocacy organization working to safeguard the earth. They try to ensure that existing laws are enforced and push for new, stronger laws protecting people, plants, and animals. A lot of the time that includes suing the U.S. government to make it follow its own environmental regulations. One of the first things Dan was tasked with at NRDC was looking into wrongdoing around nuclear waste disposal at the Department of Energy. When you produce nuclear weapons materials and everything goes with a nuclear warhead, you produce large amounts of both hazardous chemical waste and radioactive waste. And the Energy Department, in many ways, had taken the position that they were exempt from the normal federal environmental laws. But they definitely were not. Around this time, the Department of Energy was constructing the very first permanent storage facility for the radioactive waste generated by America's nuclear weapons program. The storage facility, a dump really, was to be a giant chamber buried half a mile underground in the middle of a New Mexico salt bed. It was going to be called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP. The existing EPA regulations required DOE to report about the environmental effects the storage site would have over the next 1,000 years. But nuclear waste is toxic way longer than that. So Dan wanted to find a legal mechanism that would require DOE to project the environmental effects of the site for longer. And I, I sort of stumbled on the Safe Drinking Water Act because that's a law that governs the endangerment of underground water. And then I looked at how long the standards applied for, how much you had to project into the future, how much these wastes would contaminate groundwater. And it was 10,000 years. Dan used this obscure groundwater rule and sued the EPA. He won. Now whip the nuclear waste storage facility needed to project the safety of the site 10,000 years. You are now Mr. 10,000 years. I I was Mr. 10,000 years. (laughs) And how, you might ask, can you project 10,000 years into the future? Well, no one knew. Now DOE had a problem. What might happen to that waste? And, you know, who's around to make sure that we know what happens to that waste and all of those sorts of things. So it, it, it got very both exciting and sort of mind-boggling at the same time. Nuclear waste is created in a bunch of ways, by nuclear power plants, nuclear medicine, think x-rays and radiation treatments, and from the manufacturing and dismantlement of nuclear weapons. Once this waste is created, it takes a really long time to break down and cease to be toxic to humans. Plutonium-239, the key material in nuclear weapons, has a half-life of 24,000 years. Because the half-life of these elements is so long, storing them until they are no longer hazardous to human health is serious business. The WIP storage facility was created specifically to store nuclear waste from the U.S. military. The government chose to put this plant a half mile deep in salt beds 
outside of Carlsbad, New Mexico, because it's among the driest and most geologically stable places in the U.S. The waste itself is packed into large metal drums filled with kitty litter. Like I said, serious business. The drums are put in underground rooms where the salt will creep in, completely encapsulating them in time. With all these protective measures in place, it's unlikely the containers will be corroded by water or that an earthquake will shift the earth and burst open the drums holding the waste. The name of the game in storing this stuff is to keep it as far away from humans in a very safe, stable environment until it no longer poses a threat. It's all well and good to find the perfect spot to store the waste, but a lot can happen in 10,000 years. DOE wasn't thinking about the year 12,000 when it started digging a hole in that New Mexican salt bed. But thanks to Mr. 10,000 Years and his lawsuit, they had to plan that far ahead. To wrap their heads around the problem, DOE asked Sandia National Laboratories, one of the nation's premier nuclear labs, to put together a report to figure out how to keep humans safe from WIPS nuclear waste 10,000 years into the future. Sandia's first step was to assemble a squad of nuclear waste psychics. Dan Riker was one of the first to get a call. I assume it went something like this. Hello, hello? Hey, Mr. 10,000 Years, guy who sued the pants off us. Yes. Yeah, we would now like for you to help solve the problem you created. But Dan wasn't the only one to get a call. First of all, they contacted me by phone, and they said, would you like to be part of this group? And I said, if you're trying to make forecasts for 10,000 years, you have misplaced something in your brain. This is futurist Ted Gordon. If you want to get formal, Theodore J. Gordon. Despite his unique qualifications for the job, Ted was taken aback by the proposition laid out by Sandia. You cannot forecast tomorrow with any degree of certainty, although it's more certain than 10,000 years. Agriculture was starting 10,000 years ago. So if you're asking us to think about 10,000 years from now, you've got to be nuts, frankly. But it might be fun. He accepted. Sandia kicked off this seemingly impossible task by recruiting a group of futurists, lawyers, psychologists, linguists, oh yeah, and artists who encode messages onto golden records for aliens to find. It was funny because I thought that my work on Voyager was really a one-off. I would never have a chance to do anything even remotely similar. And then along comes this Sandia project, which in a way was the perfect counterpart to the Golden Record project with a very different kind of, of tone to it. It was an incredibly diverse panel of 27 men and one woman. There is something so human about thinking you can project 10,000 years into the future, but somehow can't foresee 30 years of advances in gender equity. 
there's something also so human about making a podcast looking 30 years back and not having a single woman in it. Phase one was to figure out the future scenarios in which humans might stumble upon WIP. First, let's start by saying there was a break-in, there was an intrusion. Uh, Human beings, 10,000 years from now, got into this storage area. How did they get there? What were they looking for? And we developed stories of how that happened. And some of the scenarios were weirdly prescient. There was one scenario that had an underground subway running from Houston to Los Angeles, a vacuum tube Elon Musk type machine. Yes, the boring company. (laughs) Right. And it turned out that the WIPP was right on a straight line between Houston and Los Angeles. And the boring company entered the nuclear storage area unwittingly. Is that possible? Can you put a probability on it? Yes, the probability is zero. Or very, very close to zero. But is it something to think about? In terms of the scenarios, one was called radical increase. It was a massive increase in consumption of resources. Because with a massive increase in the consumption of resources, you increase the probability that some future generation might say, hey, this is an interesting piece of property in New Mexico. We're looking for some specific minerals. Let's go dig there. The task was open-ended, and so were the conclusions. Everyone had very different ideas about the various ways that people of the future could become accidentally poisoned by today's radioactive waste. They came up with so many scenarios that their ultimate conclusion was, you can't. You you can't really say what's going to happen. There's so many possible things that could happen, so many directions that culture could take, so many ways that changing climate could affect the demographics of the region that predicting was impossible. That conclusion that anything is possible sounds a little like an answer from a magic eight ball. But that is essentially what the group landed on. They had to assume that future human beings would somehow, some way, discover the WIP site. Phase two involved the question of how to physically mark the WIP site with a warning for future populations. And this task was a lot trickier than it may have sounded. How do we even know how future human beings will read, write, or talk? It was a situation, Jeffrey, where anything you could think of was acceptable. We said language might disappear. There might be no written language for sure, but maybe even spoken language disappears as people's brains get connected one to the other. Anything you can conceive of is possible. Simply because the future was so unknowable that we had to take whatever actions we could and throw everything we could at the wall and hope some of it would stick. Even if it was at risk of disappearing, language seemed like an obvious place to start. They could mark the site with a plaque that explained why it was dangerous. 
But which languages would still be spoken or even still be comprehensible in the deep future? For context, Beowulf was likely written about a thousand years ago. Here's a little snippet. While it is in English, our language has changed so much that it's now incomprehensible to non-experts. Religion tends to be very durable, and if religions hang around, the languages of their holy scriptures are going to hang around too. So Latin, Arabic, Hebrew might be other choices of languages that will survive into the future. A language used in a text as important and widely read as the Torah or the Quran would stand a much better chance of surviving than, say, an instruction manual in Esperanto. Even if the languages weren't still spoken, if those texts survived, maybe they could be used to translate a message from the past, like the Rosetta Stone. The third form of languages that we considered were languages most indigenous to the area. So the idea being that those are the people that have the deepest roots in that area. If climate or economic or other forces make people leave, they'll be the last to leave. The team ultimately recommended leaving the same message in seven languages. English, Spanish, Russian, French, Chinese, Arabic, and Navajo. Perhaps, just as importantly, they acknowledged that new languages will continue to appear. We also thought leave space with an implied invitation for people of the future to add new languages as they appear. So to keep the marker updated with new languages that evolve over the next few thousand years. The message they recommended went something like this. This is not a place of honor. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body, and it can kill. I don't know. That sounds pretty metal to me. The danger is to the body, and it can kill. Just like they used multiple languages, John and the team also knew that using different types of markers would increase their chance of getting the message across. If one marker didn't withstand the test of time, perhaps another would. So they started thinking about symbols, which were around a long time before language. Symbols are powerful and important, but they're nearly all culturally determined. There are very few symbols that are truly universal. If you see a skull and crossbones, maybe some people are going to stay away. And I started researching that, and I found that it was a strictly cultural symbol whose origins were in medieval art. The artist would put a skull with two bones in a cross, and it was Adam's skull, and the cross was the promise of resurrection. So instead of being a symbol of death, it was actually a symbol of rebirth, a symbol of resurrection. And as such had gotten incorporated onto tombstones— Yeah, I just thought it was for rock records, but John said it was being used in ship's logs to record a sailor's death. And when pirates started practicing their trade, they needed a symbol because they wanted to force a ship to surrender so they didn't have to damage it. They wanted to take ships intact. They didn't want to blow them up. So you wanted to say, I'm a pirate. I'm going to kill you unless you surrender. So it starts as a symbol of resurrection. It became a symbol of threatened violence. And then... 
Third meaning was added when the emerging chemical industry needed a symbol for poison and adopted it. And now if you look at the, at the final fate of the skull and crossbones, it's been adopted by the Disney franchise of Pirates of the Caribbean as their kind of symbol. And now you can see little girls carrying pink lunchboxes with skull and crossbones on them to school. So the lesson for that was a symbol is cultural and it can change. You know, one Mexican woman on the panel probably would have just said Day of the Dead and, like, save them a month of work. But whatever. The panel did get there. In fact, they wrote, <clears throat> In Mexico, the bones are the repository of the life force, and thus the skull and crossbones would have a very different meaning. We did find two things that were universal in human art. One was the stick figure. Oh, did I mention John's home in Hawaii is surrounded by many, many feral chickens? You recognize it on the walls of the cave art from 25 or 30,000 years ago. You recognize it on the walls of the art in, in ancient Egypt where they have human figures. So we thought we could use the human stick figure as a way of telling a story. The other thing that seems to be very, very common is the idea that a sequence of pictures tells a story. First this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Kind of the comic strip, the storyboard. And you find that in art from the Far East, you find it in art in Mesoamerica, you find it in art in, among the Native Americans in North America. The idea of a sequence of pictures telling a story. The team thought faces would still be recognizable 10,000 years in the future. So they developed a series of images that showed a face growing more and more disgusted as time passed, something they hoped would convey the danger of exposure to nuclear waste. Just another fail-safe among many to drive home the point that you really don't want to hang out here. But they didn't stop at signs and pictograms. Architect Michael Brill came up with a non-lingual, non-symbolic way of warning people to avoid the site. He suggested that the overall architecture of the site appeal to people's feelings, basically scare people, basically tell people this is something bad, this is something you don't want. So he came up with some massive architectural designs of, of very spiky landscapes and jagged, sharp, just un you couldn't really go in there without hurting yourself. And he hoped that that would convey the message that this is a place you should keep away from. Brill's giant spikes idea has captured the imagination of many present-day humans. A barren wasteland full of large, menacing sculptures would certainly make you stop and think. But the team had to consider the possibility that stirring the imagination might not actually be a good thing. There's also the sense that graves have always tried to scare off people with curses. You know, all the tubes in Egypt were marked with terrible curses. If you break into this, terrible things will happen to you and your descendants for seven generations, and it never works. It just makes you more anxious to get in there. Human curiosity is a force to be reckoned with. We are still taken in by Stonehenge and Easter Island, despite not knowing why they were built. Or maybe because we don't know. Building a monument risks that 10 millennia from now, it will become the distant future equivalent of the pyramids. Which, by the way, is exactly what the pharaohs did not want. Still, 
the idea of making the site an attraction came up. One of the guys on our team, the sociologist, wrote one of the papers, and he said the thing that will last for 10,000 years is an amusement park that reimagines itself every century. So he wrote one called Mickey Nuke or Nukey Mick or something like that. It was Nikki Nuke. The idea was to build an amusement park on the nuclear waste site, and the park's mascot, Nikki Nuke, would warn future generations of children to never, ever dig under the park. The suggestion might sound silly, but the idea was to make an entire culture out of the waste site. Think Disney. The idea is based on the theory that strong culture lasts, sometimes longer than language and symbols. The WIP study was not the first time someone had considered how to warn future people about nuclear waste. Another proposal to create a culture was the atomic priesthood. Basically, starting a new secret religion where, at any given time, three people hold the knowledge of a dangerous storage site and are charged with preventing others from getting close. Kind of like the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Maybe go home now, please. Each time a priest died, the knowledge would be passed on to a new person. A cult of radioactivity. Sounds like fun. Another much cuter idea was to create a breed of cats that would change color when exposed to radiation. What is it about physicists and cats? I have to be honest with you. As my producers and I worked on this episode, we kept wondering why mark the location at all? It seemed like no matter how it was marked, it would stick out, bringing people closer and making them curious. So we asked. I do not subscribe to the idea just, you know, shh, you know, forget about it and walk away and hope for the best. Because I think we have an obligation, too, to warn people of of what's there. The site is not supposed to leak, but suppose it does. Suppose 500 or 5,000 years from now, something breaks and it gets into the water table and it starts poisoning people 100 miles away. They're not going to know what's going on. So we have an ethical duty to warn. Ultimately, the recommendation John thought made the most sense was a bit more pragmatic. Instead of amusement parks, he thought about the signage at national parks. When you go to a national park and you go to a, you know, an overlook, there's a plaque there. And it may show you a contour, a little drawing of the mountain range you're looking at with the names of the mountains and the heights of the mountains and a little bit of the history of the area. It doesn't occur to you to doubt the truthfulness of that. There seems to be no bias. It's just telling you the information. It doesn't occur to you to doubt whether the height of the mountain is right or the name of the mountain is right. It's done in a modest way. It's not trying to impress you. It's not trying to scare you. It's not trying to do anything, but just convey some information to you. Don't scare them. Just tell them as clearly as you can. Just tell them the truth. And then what they do with that truth, of course, is up to them. 
If they read it and understand it and decide we're going to dig there anyway, well, it's on them. We've done our job. We can't control their behavior. It's their world at that point. We have no control over the future. So let's not pretend we do. Let's just tell them the truth as simply and clearly as we can. The Sandia reports contained a variety of proposals, a slew of suggestions, and at least one terrifying new children's cartoon character. The danger is still present. For now, all of those ideas have been shelved. WIP is an active nuclear waste storage site and will remain so for many, many years. Since the assignment was to think 10,000 years into the future, DOE doesn't have to rush into picking a particular course of action. As it stands today, they're due to announce their warning plans in 2028. WIP received its first shipment of nuclear waste in 2001. And while we don't know what will happen 10,000 years from now, it took only 13 years for this to happen. For the first time, we are seeing the immediate aftermath of a fire in the country's only nuclear waste dump. It happened just days before a radiation leak that shut the place down and got whipped fined for hazardous waste violations. On Valentine's Day 2014, there was a leak at WIP. A canister containing nuclear waste broke open, spilling its contents. Apparently, workers at the laboratory had switched the kind of kitty litter they were packing into the containers, again with the cats. Instead of the correct kind of kitty litter, they used an organic kitty litter that reacted with other chemicals to corrode the containers. That in and of itself causes people to sort of ask, are we managing this facility correctly? And I wouldn't be surprised if it brings back this question, well, if within 20 plus years of opening the facility, we've already got a problem with a leaking canister, what's that going to mean for the, for the long haul? If the phrase, the long haul, ever applied, it's here, to a problem that every successive generation will have to face. The Department of Energy has fulfilled its obligation and conducted the study that Dan's lawsuit forced them to conduct. But how we deal with this problem will be determined by how willing DOE is to keep talking about it. There used to be an expression that I think it's supposed to be Native American, that any act has to be considered the effects it'll have seven generations down the line. And that's so different from the way our society operates, where political people tend to only want to get things accomplished that can be done in their own term of office, and they're not thinking about the long term. It would be easy to look at the Sandia reports and say they're useless. A bunch of men stabbing in the dark about how to communicate with people 10,000 years into the future. The word feudal does come to mind. But the people who wrote these reports didn't shrug their shoulders and walk away. They tried. And Ted says that if the warning does end up sticking, it won't be because of something his team came up with. It will be because future generations kept trying. Every 50 years, we ought to do this study again and see how much it's changed, see what new beliefs are there, see why we think we were so ignorant before. And therefore, planning is dynamic, not only here, but everywhere. One thing that ties Ted, John, and Dan together aside from the report, is that they believe what they did mattered. 
even when they knew the problem would outlive them by millennia, they felt they had a duty to face it. I'm hopeful that, you know, enough can be passed on that we can we can prevent some pretty big intrusions that could be very, very dangerous for individuals and a whole region into a nuclear waste repository. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows enough to be right or wrong about a question like that. I think it's just a question of temperament, which is one of the things I find so fascinating. It's, it is that, without a doubt. And, you know, we, we, we won't be able to look back and see whether we were right or wrong because we'll be long gone. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I won't be around to say I told you so. <laughs> I, I will remain an optimist because I, 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 I do think I have enough of the intellectual heft to, to say it not as naive, but to say it with, with some, you know, some expertise. I think that history and history on its larger scale has a lot to teach us. And seeing ourselves as part of that history and not the end of it, just a, a, a point in it, and there's going to be lots to come. Give you some comfort that it's not just us and our problems, but we're in a larger context and we've had problems before that we've solved and somehow humans are still here and society is still here. Let's act like we're going to be viewed by our descendants and evaluated by them and try to do the best we can for them. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Lewis, and this is The Reason We're All Still Here. It's executive produced by me, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. Special thanks to the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. This episode was produced by Kelsey Albright, Olivia Canny, and Stephen Wood. It was written by Kelsey Albright, Olivia Canny, Stephen Wood, and me. Story editing from Sarah Joyner. Additional editing from Whitney Donaldson. Technical direction and engineering by Nick the Wizard Dooley. Music and sound design by Andy Chuck. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Additional production support from Ben Chug. Vocal performances by Carl Nellis. Additional production support from Gemma Castelli-Foley. Show art by Ronan Wood and Anton Mariniak. Special thanks to Jessica Varnum, Christine Ragassa, Megan Larson, and Maggie Taylor. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen.